Hey, so today we're going to be on, we're still on our, um, our series on emotions. If you're a guest with us, this is message number nine. And I've got just one more. I, I sense that we're going to end it and then we'll have a resurrection message. And then we, we actually will be done with officially the emotion series. But I have maybe two emotions that I think it's, I think it's time to really address them at a little bit more at length would be anger and fear, the fear of God fear, um, and then also uh, anger. And by the way, when I do those things, I'm, I'm really trying to equip the body. I'm really trying to equip you for our discipling relationships. So uh, today, before we end this series uh, next week, I have this thought, uh, message number nine, and here's the thought. that If you're looking for a title, if you're taking notes, four thoughts that don't help our emotions. Four thoughts that don't help our emotions. Now, some of the material that um, I'm preaching here today, I was inspired a lot by a chapter in a book called Untangling Emotions. Um, And so, one of many resources. And I thought there were really four great thoughts. I kind of adapted them and put kind of, um, kind of edited as I saw fit. Um, But in that book, Untangled Emotions... Uh, four of these thoughts were kind of inspired, really, by, by a chapter in that book. But once again, I kind of have my own. Um, even this morning, I added a fifth thought, and we'll see if the fifth thought comes out. Um, but that may be later. So four thoughts. And I'm going to go ahead and give the four thoughts to you if you want to kind of get this telecast ahead of time. If you're writing down, here are the four thoughts. Thought number one, and I would say these are thoughts that do not help our emotions. These are thoughts that I would advise you not to nurture. Here's one thought. I am my emotions. I am my emotions. That's thought number one. Not going to be God-honoring, God-sanctifying with your emotions if that's a thought that you relish. I am my emotions. Number two, I need to act right now on my emotions. I need to act right now on my emotions. I'll probably spend the most time on that one. I need to act right now on my emotions. The third thing. So I have, number one, I am my emotions. Number two, I need to act right now on this emotion. Number three, I will not examine this emotion. I will not examine this emotion. That's number three. Uh, Four thoughts that do not help our emotions. Will not help us to... Cultivate godly emotion. I will not examine this emotion. That's number three. Number four. A little bit longer, but what do you expect? Number four is this. I will not admit that people in situations are complex. Thus, my emotions can be all or nothing. I will not admit that people in situations are complex. Thus, my emotions can be all or nothing. And I'll explain what that means. I will not admit that people in situations are complex. Thus, my emotions can be all or nothing. These are four statements, four thoughts that we typically have that are not helpful when we try to evaluate emotions. All that we've learned thus far, the 14-point outline, the things I've been nuancing about emotions, these four thoughts, I believe, are heavily influenced many times in our thinking and our processing and our souls and they're they're not helpful okay so 
First, let's look at this first one. I am my emotions. I am my emotions. I believe this is something that we think oftentimes. We may not articulate it exactly that way, but we really do think this thing. We have some powerful emotion that's going on inside of us, and we let it out to whoever. And then at the end of it, we just kind of think, well, this is the real me. Like what, what I'm feeling at this moment and what I've just expressed to you, this is the real Nick. This is him at his core, uncensored. This is exactly what I am. And I would go, that's incorrect. You and I are amalgamation of many things. Of at times deceitful desires, at times God-exalting desires. But your emotions and our emotions are not the core of who we are. Let me tell you the core of who we are. It's Christ, right? That's the core of what we are. Our identity is not in our emotions. Our identity is not the raw feelings we feel at the moment. That's not the true you. The true you is Christ in you. The scriptures say the what? The hope of glory. The real you is if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. The real you is we take every, every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's the real you. But oftentimes, this error, my, I am my emotions. So when there's something intense in life that happens, and there's strong feelings in that moment, we have this idea, and I believe it stems from a secular, man-centered Freudianism kind of idea that lurks about in our culture, that we think we have this unconsciousness in, our, in ourselves and that that unconsciousness is unlocked in the moment of primal, just uh, primal, just because emotions of the moment. And that's the true thing that you are. By the way, I don't have time to explore this with you, but I would throw great caution to accept the idea of the unconscious. That there's that that everything you do in life is so deep seated that you don't even know it. I would not support that concept in scripture. Maybe sometime I'll do a deeper teaching on that. But we often think this thing, that I am my emotions. That's not true. So what do we see any example of this happening in the text of Scripture? Yeah, we do. Look in Psalm 142. Look in Psalm 142 with David. Psalm 142. Now, here's what tends to happen when our emotions... When we kind of say this, I am my emotions, what often happens is we're not engaging God at that moment. We're really engaging ourselves. We're exalting ourselves. It, we're, our uh, perspective in the situation is getting distorted. Everything's getting overridden. And instead of connecting with God, engaging in God at the pivotal moment when we're starting to feel those strong emotions... We start claiming that this is the real me. The raw things that I feel at this moment is the real me. And I would say we're actually missing a wonderful opportunity to engage with God. And also, the very fact in that moment that we could struggle with such self-exalting thoughts shows our need for him. Look at Psalm 142. And the Bible commentators would toggle between saying First Seth, uh, First Samuel 22 or First Samuel 24 is what's being talked about right here. This is either David in the cave at Adullam or David at the cave when Saul comes in and is relieving himself. I think it's really at the cave of Adullam. And basically we find in 
First Samuel chapter 22, David is on the run. He's all alone, but yet there are 400 coming his way. And he's in a moment of kind of sadness. He's in a moment of darkness in his life. And watch what happens. Psalm chapter 142. That for a moment, you see David indulging in this idea of I am my emotions. And you see what happens when his eyes get off God. He instantly descends downward, just so we know. When our eyes are off God, our emotions will often reveal it in the moment. So what happens is this. Look in chapter 142, verse 1. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. Remember, he's on the hunt. He's being hunted down by Saul. He's in a cave all alone. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. Verse 2, I tell my trouble before him. Hey, does this not look good, everybody? Psalm 142. I'm like, David, way to go. You're in a difficult situation. You're pouring your heart out to the Lord. Yes and amen, brother. Look in verse 3. When my spirit faints within me, you know my ways. Doing great, David. You're acknowledging the pain. You're taking it to the only one that understands and knows the pain. You're You're letting this strong emotional moment drive you to engage with the Lord. Way to go, David. But yet David has the same problems we have. Look what happens quickly. And this is quick. This is quick. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge reigns for me. No one cares for my soul. Like, David, what happened, man? You need a hug? Like, you were just like going to the Lord and all of a sudden like, no one cares. What happens? He's having a moment of, I am my emotion. He's having this, and, and, and you'll know this. Because in the moments when you think, I am my emotion, one of the things that happens sometimes is you'll have this feeling of, I'm all alone, no one knows, no one cares. Now watch what he does, though. He doesn't stay there. He, this is an opportunity to engage with God again. In verse 5, I cry to you, Lord. I say you are my refuge. For what other thing can he do in this moment? Not keep wallowing in the pit of despair in verse 4. He goes to verse 5. He goes back to the Lord. He engages with the Lord. Instead of claiming the emotion I feel at the moment is the true me, it would actually say the moments I'm feeling in the moment would act, actually drives me to engage with the one true God. So he says in verse 5, I cried to you, O Lord. I say you are my refuge. He's telling himself the feelings he feels are wrong. I love this. And then he says this, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. It's true, he was being hunted. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. Then look what he says at the end of verse 7. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. All of a sudden, by the end of verse 7, he's saying, I'm not alone anymore. And actually, when you read 1 Samuel 22, you find out there's like 400 other strugglers that are tagging along with David, and there's more story behind that. But what I want you to find is this, this idea. It's a false thought that we have in our emotions many times. And I want to discourage you from entertaining this thought. I say you, us. I am my emotion. What I feel in this moment of profound anger or anxiety or whatever, that's the true me. It's not the true you. Christ in you, the hope of glory, that's the true you. Your identity is in Christ. So in those moments, it's a wonderful opportunity to drive yourself towards the Lord and know It's not easy. I mean, David's driving himself to the Lord. And then it it seems like, man, it seems like, 
you know, he, he's just flipping over to the other side and goes, no one cares. He makes his way back to the Lord. So that's one error I think that people actually do. It distorts our perspectives. It engages our life in self-pity and exalting of self instead of exalting God. The hurts, the hurts of life are a great, and I, I don't beg God for them, but all the hurts of life are actually a great opportunity. Especially when you get to the point where you're thinking, I am all alone. There's one who's never left you alone. Now, number two. So I am my emotions. Number two. And oh boy, can't you imagine we're going to spend some time on this one. I need to act right now. I need to act right now on my emotions. Um, That would be, I need to act right now on this. I would strongly discourage the body of Christ to operate with that thought in mind when it comes to our emotions. Now, I will tell you this. There are some positive aspects to acting right now in our emotions, all right? So, there are some positive aspects of this. For instance, you get out of the car. Your kid gets out of the car. Your two-year-old starts running towards the street. All of a sudden, this surge of emotion comes in of fear and panic, and you scream, and you and that adrenaline excites you that, you run faster than you've ever, you know, you can run a 4-1 in the 40, right? You just spring into action and run, and you have no idea how in the world you got so fast. What is that? That's emotion doing its good work. That's a good thing. So sometimes the raw emotion of the moment is actually there in a positive aspect. It's there to help us protect. It's there to help us protect others. It's cause for us to move when life is kind of in danger. If you're in your car and you see someone swerving up ahead, it's the emotions of the moment. It's even the physiological things that happen in your body that you kind of go, wait a minute, I'm going to slow down, I'm going to steer, I'm going to, do, I'm going to go a different route. I saw a video the other day where this, uh, there this, one, this really one-lane road, it was very narrow, just enough space where a car could pass on the shoulder in the grass on either side. And in this video, this car had stopped and then four guys got out, right? And the car behind it was probably about maybe 50 yards behind it. That person put on their brakes so because they knew something wasn't right. Then all of a sudden, as they saw four guys get out with guns and start charging towards them, that person puts on their gas and just drives right towards them and like hits the shoulder and just keeps driving. Now, here's the deal. Emotions in that moment were actually really good help. They, they assessed, they saw it, it helped them to come. They sprung into action, they, they did, and they got out of there safely. So don't let me say that this idea that emotions can't be very helpful in the moment, like act right now on your emotions. I, I want to tell you, act right now on your emotions when someone's life is in jeopardy and danger, all right? Those are good things the Lord has given. How do I know that? Well, if you've been a parent long enough, have you ever been amazed how many times we even get out of childhood alive? I mean, have you not noticed how many times? I mean, I've been thinking over my life thus far, and sometimes it does. I mean, sometimes bad things happen, but I cannot tell you how many times, but for the grace of God in some quick action by parents, it's like you've interceded for your little kids when they couldn't, they knew no better. So those are good, but not all the time. When someone's life isn't in danger, when there isn't, you know, that emotion in the moment, the right thing and thought is not, i got to act on this right now. In fact, most of the time, you're going to do something really foolish. 
Now, I hate to beat this because you all saw this uh, this week, but man, I think it's a great example, right? All of you were watching the Oscars, weren't y'all? Weren't y'all doing that on Sunday night, watching the Oscars, enjoying it? Truth be known, I didn't even know the Oscars were on. I didn't even know they still exist. Uh, I hardly even know it. Um, I just don't watch a lot of TV. I'm too busy praying, right? <laughs> so you all saw the whole thing with Will Smith and Chris Rock and all that kind of stuff. You saw it. Um, and when I watched it, by the way, do you all know what I'm talking about? Is everybody like, I have no idea? If you have no idea what I'm talking about, you've been under a rock all week or you've been praying and reading your Bible, good for you, friend. You're, you're, you don't even need this message. But if you have any kind of social media, if you popped on the TV or the news network, Will Smith comes up and slaps Chris Rock on stage at the Oscars. Chris Rock said something terrible about his wife, Jada Pinkett, who has alopecia, a disease where it leaves you that you can't grow um, hair on your head. He said something, he, he said a joke using her, um, her, her, her physical issue. He took exception to it. He walks up on stage in front of cameras and everybody, slaps him in the face, goes back, and kind of goes on a cussing tirade towards Chris Rock. Um, now, here's the thing. Should a man be concerned when someone actually makes fun of his wife? Yes. And can a man be angry about that and respond in righteous ways? Yes. I'm not sure he quite did that. But I, but aside from all that, I mean, some women might be like, man, I'm so glad. I want my husband to slap somebody, right? I mean, I get it. I mean, I get it. But in the grand scheme of things, if we can take the emotions of the moment, Will Smith nurtured this idea in his life, I need to act right now on this emotion, right? He felt anger, and he acted on it in the moment right now. And I would tell you, I would discourage us from ever, unless someone's life is in danger, thinking that your back is so against the wall that you got to act in this, you got to act on this emotion immediately, or try to influence someone to act on emotion immediately when there is no life in danger or life-altering things going on in the moment. I want to show you a familiar text, but two places. First, I want you to take your Bible, go to Ephesians four twenty-six. I want to show you this principle. Ephesians four twenty-six. And then I want you to hold your place in Ephesians 4.26 and go to Psalm 4.4. I cannot tell you how much, how much destruction and damage has been done to relationships. Nurturing this idea that I need to act right now on this emotion. I guarantee you there have been several couples in here who have said things that they never should have said. You know, it's an interesting thing. I've had to repent for saying things, but I have yet had to repent for just listening. I've never had to repent for being slow to action in matters that aren't of someone's safety. I've, I've never had to. Never once had to say, I'm sorry that I, I listened. I'm sorry that I didn't over-respond or re- overreact in this moment. The scriptures bear this out. What's interesting, look at Ephesians 4.26. We're very familiar with this. Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. We all know that verse. It's sandwiched in between this idea of how biblical change happens. This idea that there's a such thing as righteous anger, but there's also unrighteous. 
And one of the things about our anger is we, do, we don't want to stew in it. So don't sin with it. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. It's this idea of don't go to bed angry. You'll hear a couple say, when the Bible says don't go to bed angry. And I, I think that's a really great thing. But when you interpret scripture, you always want to interpret scripture in light of other scripture. In the context and then where else is it spoke. Look in Psalm 4.4. Paul, when he says Ephesians 4.26, he's actually quoting from Psalm 4.4. But he has the thought of Psalm 4.4, but he's not quoting it verbatim. He's giving a little bit different spin under the inspiration of God. But you always interpret scripture with scripture. So look what he says in Psalm 4.4. Be angry and do not sin. That look familiar? Psalm 4.4, Ephesians 4.26. Then he says this. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Ponder in your own hearts on your bed and be silent. Paul is not saying that the way to not be angry when the sun goes down is... He's saying to slow, I'm sorry, I'm just trying to read my notes. Why am I trying to do that? I should just tell you. So Paul's, when you compare these two, this idea of do not let the sun go down on your anger, how do you not let the sun go down on your anger? Some would say, just choose not to be angry. <laughs> Try that, that doesn't work very well. Or just, you know, refuse to say anything nasty. I would actually say, look back at Psalm 4.4, and he encourages this idea of, Slowing things down, not responding immediately, and ponder in your hearts on your own beds and be silent. It's this idea of, if I'll take a step back, have some, times to, have some time to evaluate my soul, what I think about the Lord, or what happened in this moment. I felt like I just had to go forward and act on my emotions. By the time the sun goes down, I won't have that anger. I mean, you have this idea of the sun going down here, lying on your bed. There's this idea of I'm stopping, I'm pondering. I mean, when you lie down in your bed, you're typically not involved in the activities of life. I mean, back then they also didn't have Netflix, right? They didn't have smartphones, praise the Lord, so they could actually think deeply about life. If you're ever wondering, man, I really just need to start thinking more deeply at night, you might want to put away the smartphone, right? You might just want to lay down in your bed and think a little bit deeper. If you've had a a really difficult day at work and people have sassed you all day at work and you're wondering, how should I handle this? How should I handle these powerful emotions I have? I just want to act on there. I want to go in there tomorrow and just wring their neck. Okay, I know. None of y'all think that, right? Well, you might want to ponder on your bed about your love for the Lord and how God views other people and your own sin and his righteousness and his grace and how can you have an appropriate response to them. That's the be angry and do not sin. What's the principle we see from Paul, quoting from uh, Psalm 4 with David, we see this idea that we do not need to act right now on all of our emotions. We can actually take a step back. When you watch the Oscars and you saw what Will Smith did, he sped it up in the moment, right? That's what we actually need to do. Now I will tell you, there's a natural time to speed up the emotions. In the moment when something's going wrong and someone's life is in jeopardy or something's at stake, that is actually God-given, even physiologically, what happens in your body to spring into action and save. But in the general flow of life, we actually should try to slow things down. We should take a step back. We should take some time to evaluate, to ponder, to think, to look at the, our own soul, to make sure that we're looking at this from God's perspective, to look, make sure that there's no self-righteousness in our own soul, and thus we'd have a bad response. Psalm 145, verse 8. Here's even the thing. As you ponder on your bed... 
as we kind of say, I'm, I, I'm not going to just act on my emotions right now in this moment. This gives us a chance to value even the character of God. Like, God, how can, my, how can my response to this person reflect your character? For instance, Psalm 145 verse 8 says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Why would we want to be, how can you be slow to anger? You can be slow to anger when you have time to actually process it and evaluate it and take it, take it and be silent as you go to bed. You can actually then look at things so that if you do have to have righteous anger the next day, you'll actually do it the right way for the glory of God, the good of the other person. By the way, I love the scripture, James 1, 19 through 20. It says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It, it, I mean, you, it only takes a, several, a couple times to actually think that my anger is going to work God's righteousness. It doesn't. But you ever notice that this encouragement to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, you ever notice this is usually the reverse with our emotions? You ever notice this? Typically, we're quick to anger. We're quick to speak. And after we've done Sherman's March on Georgia, maybe then we'll listen. Right as we're repenting. Well, that's the deal. I need to act right now on this emotion. That false thought, the scriptures warn us about that kind of thing. And there's always this idea of, you know what, if I don't say this right now, I, I won't say that later. Well, then maybe it's not the right thing to say at that moment. I mean, have you ever thought about that? You ever thought in the moment that we're not that sanctified completely? And so this is why sometimes I'm telling you, at work, in our marriages, in our families, in our friendships, how many times we have burned things down, I'm telling you, burned things down because we thought in the moment, I've got to act right now on this emotion. The scriptures would encourage you, don't go that route. Okay, so that's number two. Are y'all still with me? Are you good? Okay. Number three, I will not examine this emotion. I will not examine this emotion. That's the fourth thing I, I want to warn us about. I will not examine this emotion. If you have a coworker that's offensive to you, typically what we'll do is we'll just avoid that person. Someone in our church family, we'll just avoid that person. Someone in our own family, we'll just try to avoid that person. That's typically what we do. We don't like something that our spouse has done, we'll just go sleep in another room, right? That's kind of how we do this because... One of the errors is we don't want to examine that emotion. It's really easier just to skirt around people, ignore them, minimize them, go somewhere else, and just kind of avoid them. We don't really want to confront what's going on in our own soul. The unexamined life is not a sanctified life. And let me say this for you again. The unexamined life is not a sanctified life. The process of sanctification, setting ourselves apart from sin and unto God, if there is no time of constant evaluation of our own soul before the Lord, it's not going to be a very profitable growth in the Lord for any of us. And one of the things about our emotions is they are wonderful opportunities. I would encourage people, make your emotions work for you. And here's what I mean when I say make your emotions work for you. When we experience those driving emotions at the time, they're strong. And we would just rather, dis I mean, there's some people who just want to act on those emotions. Some would just rather dismiss everybody around them and just seek to go into another space. I would say, you're not letting your emotions work for you very well. Let your emotions work for you. 
That doesn't mean I'm not telling you to obey them. What I'm telling you is start asking good questions of the soul at that moment. It's a wonderful time to engage where your soul is before the Lord. It's also a wonderful time to engage God. Ask questions. Four questions I think would be great to ask in that moment. What is my emotion telling me about my thoughts? What is my emotions telling me about my thoughts? What is my emotions telling me about God's thoughts? What is my emotions telling me about God's thoughts? Number three, what is my emotions telling me about my love for my neighbor? What, are, what, is, what is my emotion telling me about my love for my neighbor? And that, not just your physical neighbor, that's anybody, right? And what is a righteous and God-honoring response to the emotions I feel at this moment? What is a righteous and God-honoring response to the emotions I feel at this moment? I will not examine this emotion. That's, I believe, a bad thought to have in response to emotion. I will not examine it. Examine it. In fact, let your emotions work for you. That's a wonderful opportunity. Sometimes when we experience that anxiety or that anger or that fear or that jealousy, taking, having the opportunity to lie on our bed and take some examination of our soul and our lives actually is a, is a help to us. It sanctifies us. Take your Bible and look at, go to 1 Corinthians chapter, actually we'll go two places. Look at Matthew 7, I'll show this to you. Matthew 7 and verse 3 through 5. The unexamined life is not a life that will live a sanctified life. And may I submit this idea that for some of us, the reasons our relationships are so bad in life is because we're not willing to take an evaluation of our own life. We're not willing to evaluate how has my response been to these people in light of Christ. Verse 3. Why do you see, this is Matthew 7. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck, the splinter, the toothpick out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So God clearly calls us to help and to love each other, where we'll try to get what's in a person's eye, we'll try to get what's offensive in their life, we'll help them on their road to sanctification. But first, that can happen. We actually have to do some heart work ourselves. We have to do, in Matthew 7, some evaluation. We have to look at the own log in our own eye so that we can be a blessing and help others. And I see this idea. This is why I say, this is a false thought to say, I will, not, I will not examine this emotion. Oh man, we should be examining our emotions all the time to see where there is deceitful desire, to see where there is lustful passion, and to see where we can worship Christ, to see how can we value how he would respond in this moment. Let me show this to you again, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the life of evaluation. By the way, just a side thought. This is one of the many reasons it's good to have a time with the Lord each day. Because you and I are not built to go from event, 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 event with no reflection. This is why God even puts the rhythm of Sabbath rest. So that you have a chance to rest and to reflect. And I know I'm preaching to myself, but it just doesn't matter. Like, this is part of the rhythms of what God has for us. People that don't have these rhythms, they're not able to examine themselves. Even part of coming to church, this is why I love taking communion every single week, right? Because it is a 
sober time to do some examination of ourselves in light of who God is and in light of how we've treated others. You see this even in, even in taking communion. Let me read this for you. Look at 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. Are you all okay with reading the Bible a little bit? Okay. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 17. Let me read for you this idea of examining oneself. But in the following instructions, this has to do with the Corinthian church taking communion, and they weren't examining themselves before they were taking communion. And because they lived an unexamined life, they were responding to each other in very sinful ways. And God was disciplining them for that. Verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. So the church is very divided. And he says, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. For when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. They were coming together, eating a meal, taking the Lord's Supper. And he's saying, you're not really taking the Lord's Supper. Verse 21. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Basically, those that had resources were eating up all their food and drink so they didn't have to share with the poor who didn't have food and resources. And communion, the Lord's gathering of his people in the church, was where everybody was on level ground. Didn't matter whether you're rich or poor. Didn't matter what ethnicity. You all were on level ground before the cross, right? All are sinners. All are in cosmic rebellion. And grace is grace was offered for all. He says in verse 20, What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So he says, man, you're not waiting on each other. You're not taking, I mean, you're, you're just being selfish, which just a side note. This is why I love actually eating with each other. And some, you know, in our whole, by the way, I just want to say church, well done in your, this whole family meal approach that we've taken. It's been so much work on you guys. I get it. And man, I'm just, I'm so enthused with what God's been doing in our gatherings. But I've noticed a couple times where I walk out there and it seems like we have maybe a low amount of food one Sunday. And there's a part of me that's like, oh man, I hate that, you know, because I just love having more food. But then there's a part of me that says, well, thank you, Lord. Because now people have to actually think about the other person behind them. And this is like the whole Corinthian church is having to deal like we actually have to kind of think about our brother before ourselves. And what a great rhythm to have to think about as a part of our lives. Like, Lord, thank you for this. Go back to verse 23. So he says this. For I see from the Lord I delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he is betrayed, he took bread. And when he given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is now the covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The deal is the church was not actually doing that. They were being selfish and self-focused unforgiving, bitter, divided, disunity. They basically were living the unexamined life. Even their emotions towards each other, you could clearly say, were unexamined. So Paul says, let's examine it in verse 27. We need some examination. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of Jesus. Let a person examine himself. Then so eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For if anyone eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. 
That is why many are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we will not be judged. But when you are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait on one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment, but for other things. And I will give directions when I come. Paul just says, you know what you need to do? You need to examine your life. You're coming to communion, all kind of not looking at your life right, not looking at your life in light of who Jesus is, not looking at your own indwelling sin. You're being self-exalting and selfish and now bitter and divided. And what was happening? They weren't examining themselves. What I love about emotions is they're so powerful, they're so controlling, but yet it's a wonderful opportunity to examine. Have you ever been with your family, right? Everything was going good. It was a nice fall day. It's like that, you know, I love the transition into fall because like when you're a big dude, it's like you finally get to put on like the big sweaters. You kind of got to cover things up, right? Come on, can I get amen from the big people, right? right? The big dudes, right? Just like, I just love the fall. Like you change over, you're wearing the hoodies. Like life's just really kind of good. And like the weather's perfect. You're not sweating anymore. Because like when you're a big dude, you just sweat all the time, right? It's just, you're constantly sweating. And all you're dreaming about is having a car with like those kind of air-conditioned seats, right? You just dream about those things where you can just knock out the sweat. I'm just giving you the inside scoop, right? So you know what's going on. And it's like a nice fall day, man. Everything's right. You know what it's like, those nice fall days when they start. Going along with your family, everything's going great. And all of a sudden, before you know it, you're offended by something. Right? You just don't even know it. Have you ever been in that situation and you're thinking, I mean, after about an hour in, everybody's in a bad mood where you're going now and nothing's even going right and you're just wondering to yourself, how did we get here? I'll tell you why we got here. The unexamined life. Like, even in the midst, like, when that first thing happens and it strikes our soul and we're ready to lash out, see that instead of turning to the people that did something that may not even, they may not even meant to be offensive. They could have just accidentally stumbled upon your idol. They could have accidentally just stumbled upon your idol, right? And what we do many times is we just lash out at them. And really, we should probably go is, man, what a great opportunity, Lord. I'm going to actually examine my heart and life. See, when our emotions get like that, it's just a wonderful opportunity to examine ourselves and see where we're at. It's a sanctifying experience. I thank the Lord for it. Here's the last thing. So we have, number one, I am, I am my emotions. Number two, I need to act right now on this emotion. Number three, I will not examine this emotion. And number four, here's the last point. I will not admit that people and situations are complex. Thus, my emotions can be all or nothing. All or nothing. Take your Bible and look at Ephesians 4.32. Ephesians 4.32. Ephesians 4.32. People and situations are complex, everybody. One of the things with the dangers of our emotions is we'll come to this all-or-nothing perspective on people. For instance... You're at work, someone says something. And then your thought is this. They meant that offensive. It's completely bad. That person's completely bad. There is nothing redemptive about that person. Forget it. Cross them off. They are going to hell, right? And I would say this. That person at work might have said something bad to you, 
But also understand this. People are nuanced. And the bad thing they said about you may actually have little to do with you that day. It may have to do with they just found out that their kid that their kid wrecked the car last night. They just found out that they've been disciplined another time through a through an email from HR department, right? Doesn't everybody hate the HR department, right? It's like the normal thing. It's okay to not to like the HR department. Jesus is okay with that. I mean, like, I'm sorry for the HR department people. You brought it on yourself. I'm just, just messing with you. But, so we, we think people are either, we, we'll walk in these situations and go, bad, good, bad, good. And I would go, actually, you know what? People are very more nuanced than that. They really are. We see everything is so black and white sometimes when a, when a person has said something or done something to us. And there is an amalgamation of things going on in that person's life themselves. And what we got to protect our emotions is this. Just running off the rails and going, oh, I know why they did that. Well, that person means complete evil for me. And I would go, that's not a very wise and nuanced perspective of man when you look in the scriptures. Sometimes when a person's angry, there may be extenuating circumstances in their life that may actually be impinging on on you. Thus, it's not an all or nothing. Sometimes it might be this thing of, wait a minute, what this person said was bad, but I know that this person's having this go on in their life, so I'm going to forgive and I'm going to overlook this because I know they're kind of in a pressured situation. See, that's, that's, we're able to do that when we don't buy into this lie that, that people in situations are complex and that we just think everything's an all or nothing. And we make these judgment calls about people all the time. Oh, I know why they said that. They said that because they just wanted to get a dig at me. Well, it's very possible. But it's also possible that you and I aren't interpreting things right. I mean, when you're sinners, this also means as a sinner that you don't perceive and evaluate everything 100% correct. Let me show this to you in Ephesians 4.32. Here's how we correct this. So Ephesians 4.31 is the manifestations of sinful anger. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, bitterness is you can't stand the person anymore. You don't even want to be around them. And you're just like, does that mean I'm bitter? Yes, there you go. And wrath and anger, wrath is this exploding anger here. We're comparing and contrasting would be this kind of icy cold. I mean, there, you may not be screaming at people in your house but you may have been ignored them and, and screened them and been so um, avoiding of them. It's a silent, icy, cold type of anger. Clamor, that's when you're yelling slander. You're cutting down their character. You'll say anything bad about them to anybody. Be put away from you with all malice. That's intent to do harm. So this is manifestations of sinful anger, verse 31 of Ephesians 4. Now look in verse 32. This is how we can work against this principle. Be kind one to another. Be kind. The next time there's a situation happens, instead of running and giving into this idea that, that people are not complex and that everything's black and white, kind of start to go, you know what? What if I just go ahead and just treat them kindly and though they treat me in evil? Maybe as I treat them kindly, the Lord will show me my own sin because how difficult this actually is. And maybe the grace of God can minister them in such a moment that Romans 12, that coals of fire will kind of heap on them from that. Maybe they'll experience God's conviction. But then keep looking. What's that next word after be kind one to another? Tender hearted. Some of your versions might say compassionate. 
You remember when we talked about Jesus a couple of weeks, the type of compassion he had? You remember the Greek word? It's, it's this at the deep inner part of you, right? That's the same root word right here. It's this compassion where you're trying to, you're, you're, you're feeling something for somebody and it's kind of like deep in your soul. Well, how does the person get there? First, I would say this, this word tenderhearted, it's an investigative word. Instead of coming to this idea in life where we just think people in situations aren't complex and so I've just made a call, I actually would tell you this, people are more nuanced than that. And instead, why don't we practice tenderheartedness, compassion, trying to understand what's actually gone on in the world. The next time someone fires off at you and you are tempted to just categorize them as they're automatically bad, life's back in white, go, you know what? People are more nuanced in this. Hey, brother, man, you seem like you're having a bad day. Tell me what's been going on in your life, you know? How you doing today? That's called tenderhearted. You might discover some contributing factors for the way they've acted. Now, in the end, we might say this. I don't want to do that, Nick. You can forget it, okay? I don't want to do that. I don't want to practice kindness. I don't want to practice tenderheartedness. Got it. But the rest of this verse gives us the motivation for how we can actually do that. Look at the end of verse 32. So how can we be kind to someone who's been unkind to us? How can we be tenderhearted, compassionate from the deep bowels? How can we be more interested in what's going on in their world than ours? How can we use this to fight against this idea that people in situations aren't complex and thus everything's black and white? We just call people evil and we just treat them evil and think in our emotions. I would say this. You can do kindness and you can do tenderheartedness if you have the end of verse 32. Forgiving one another as God in Christ what? As God in Christ what? In our culture, the standard for truth is our emotions, right? I am my emotions. I need to act on my emotions right now. I don't need to examine them. Everything's black and white. I'll just make a call and that's how I'm going to treat people. However I feel in the moment. But actually, the scriptures have this different idea of, why don't you try forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you? Why don't you try actually not using what they've done against you as the Lord? And the standard is always the Lord. This is the great thing. There's nothing. Everybody look at your neighbor and say nothing. Look at your neighbor. Say nothing. Nothing. Do this. Look at your other neighbor and say nothing. Okay. Look at the person across the table and say nothing. Okay. Nothing. Nothing. There's nothing anybody has ever done to you that's more than your rebellion, your cosmic rebellion against God. The standard of forgiveness, the standard of tenderheartedness, the standard of kindness, the standard of actually being more interested in glorifying God, looking at your own sin, and being a blessing to others who have charged you emotionally in their things and what they've done to you in life. The standard is Christ. Forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. He's the standard. And thus I would submit to you, the motivation is all found once more in the gospel for everything we've said. Just like today, if you're here and Christ isn't yours, your motivation is the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. You want to know why you want to get saved? You want to come to Jesus as Lord and King? Yes, you'll get a ticket out of hell into heaven, but you'll get God right now. And I give no hope to somebody. Listen, I give no hope to somebody to live an emotionally well life who Jesus isn't Lord and King. Why is that? Because if Jesus isn't your Lord and King, guess who is? 
And when you make your own self your Lord and King, you have no other choice in life but to exalt yourself, be offended by everybody, feel like you've been hurt by everybody, and everybody's the enemy, and all the world's against you, and you're all alone. My friend, you can only come to that kind of conclusion in life if you are devoid of the one true God. Would you stand together with me? We're going to pray as our worship team comes and sings a great song to point us back to Jesus. Father, if there's someone who is here without Christ, at 15, you saved me. I realized my sin. I realized I couldn't save myself. I realized I was in cosmic rebellion against God. But I realized that, that I was a liar. I was a luster. I was a coveter. I had disobeyed my parents. I had made idols out of things like football and baseball and thoughts of fame and fortune. <coughs> but you came and rescued me at 15. Thank you. If there's somebody here who's never placed faith in the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, would you rescue them today like you rescued me at 15? And God's people said, Amen.